From WDBM, East Lansing. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Our weekly news and storytelling program. Made by and for the students of Michigan State University. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. there and welcome back to the undercurrent this is season 13 episode one i'm your host sophie sagan and i'm so glad that you're here holy crap i can't believe we made it to 13 seasons i mean i think i made my first story for the undercurrent in season six and now we're in season 13 seven seasons later and that's just so unbelievable to me. And I mean, I'm feeling a little bit weird about it. Maybe weird's the wrong word, but it's just that this will be my last season as host and contributor to The Undercurrent. And as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to say for this intro, I was thinking about the number 13 and what I could say about that. And the thing that kept coming to my mind was that 13's usually considered an unlucky number. For whatever reason, I don't really know why. Maybe I can look that up someday. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that I thought about that and thought about it and kept trying to come up with something to say about it. But really, all I could think was that I can't really relate anything unlucky to the undercurrent because I feel so lucky doing it. And I feel really fortunate to bring these great stories from all these different people and places around Michigan State and Michigan. And um, I don't know. I just am really excited to kick off season 13. I think it's going to be the best one yet. And, well, let's just not put it off anymore. So our first story today is by reporter and producer Taylor Holterman. She did a bunch of research and interviews about how sleep affects us. And, um, yeah, let's officially kick off season 13 with her story starting right now. Okay, I'll admit it. Last semester, I did not prioritize my sleep. And I feel like it's become a popular thing for college students to boast about the lack of sleep we've gotten, like it's some sort of sadistic contest. It's common practice to greet each other during finals week with, yeah, I only slept for two hours last night. Or, I haven't slept all night, and this is my fourth coffee. And I get it. I've been there. I've said that. We do what we need to do to make the college lifestyle work and juggle our endless tasks. But I'm finally going to say it. I'm not proud of my lack of sleep. In fact, I'm disappointed in myself for not prioritizing a basic human necessity. And my body feels like it needs to hibernate. Which I guess makes sense when my inner monologue sounds a little something like this. Because now the due dates for everything that I didn't do, that I was putting off because of school, that should have been done, are coming up, and Christmas is happening. But I'm not ready. I didn't even buy the Christmas gifts yet. I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, if you're listening. I am very stressed. It's officially 1.51. I was supposed to leave my house at 12.30, and now I am just leaving. I am stressed. The stress level has not reduced. We'll come back with hopefully less stress. And I'm even more stressed. I fishtailed on black ice. I can't see the lines on the road. 
I hate this. And also very tired, which is probably not good. But it's fine. I'm good. I'm making it home. Yes. Over winter break, I forgot to buy my parents Christmas gifts. That's a prime example of how scrambled my brain has been lately. At one point, I even slept through six alarms and missed work. Like I said, not proud. And it turns out so many of our issues can be solved by actually sleeping at night and breaking that college myth that the person who stays awake the longest is for some reason superior. The largest sleep deprivation study in the field was recently conducted by Michigan State University researchers Michelle Steppen, Eric Altman, and Kimberly Fenn. It has been published in the American Psychological Association's Journal of Experimental Psychology, and according to the study, sleep deprivation can negatively affect cognitive processes like attention, problem-solving, and placemaking, which involves the ability to perform a set of tasks in order, according to Steppen. A real quick example of this is baking or cooking, where there's a set of steps you have to follow if you're baking a cake, for example, and the order of those steps is really important. And if you skip over a step and forget to add sugar, that's going to mess up the outcome. But if you repeat a step and add twice as much salt to your recipe, that's also going to mess up your outcome. So that's a really simple example where the outcome of that isn't life or death. It's not catastrophic if you mess up that. But there's other examples, especially in the medical or military personnel, where messing up a sequence of events can can actually be life or death. Stepin is a recent MSU graduate with a PhD from the Cognition and Cognitive Neuroscience Program. So she understands the lack of sleep and stress that can come with college. But she still recommends not pulling all-nighters to study before an exam. You know, as far as, like, how much sleep can you sacrifice and still be okay, that's that's a question that's not really definitively answered. It's hard to say how much sleep you can lose and still get by. I would say that for any amount of sleep you're losing, you're still not going to be performing at peak performance. So even if you sacrifice an hour of sleep, you're still not going to be performing at your best than if you got, you know, the, a full night of sleep that is good for you. Steppen said the amount of sleep each person needs a night varies and is not just the recommended eight hours for everyone. Instead, she recommends listening to your body and sleeping enough to feel rested, whether that is more or less than eight hours. This particular study was conducted on 138 college students. They were taught two tasks. One was an attention-focused task where they waited for a red circle to appear on a computer screen and were instructed to click the mouse as quickly as possible when it did. The second test was meant to test placemaking. They were taught a sequence of steps that were essentially answers on a computer, and then, while they were repeating the sequence, they would get interrupted and would have to complete a typing task before returning to the sequence from where they left off. They were then randomly selected to either stay awake in the lab all night or go home to sleep. In the morning, the sleeping group returned, and everyone repeated those two tests to measure for difference in error. The results showed that total sleep deprivation may impair more than just your attention and can impair higher-order cognitive processes. Importantly, we found that participants who were sleep-deprived performed much worse on both of those tasks. So for the attention task, they had more lapses of attention, so they were much slower to respond when that red circle appeared. And then for the placekeeping task, participants made more errors. So they were more likely to forget where they were in a sequence and either repeat or skip over steps in that sequence. 
it's really interesting because participants performed that same task in the evenings. They learned the sequence, they knew about the task, they knew what they were doing. And despite all of that, they still like roughly doubled their errors when they performed that task when they were sleep deprived. This study was focused on showing whether or not more than just attention is impacted by sleep deprivation, which Stepan explains they were able to do. You know, that's that's a pretty big jump in error rates. There's this notion that attention is kind of important for everything you do, right? Like you can't perform this placekeeping task if you're not also paying attention to what you're doing. And so we really wanted to zero in on is attention the main thing that is impaired when you're sleep deprived or is it attention and other Uh, specific aspects of cognition, like the actual placekeeping component. So we controlled for how participants performed on the attention task when they're doing the placekeeping task and still found that sleep deprivation directly impaired attention, but also directly impaired the specific aspects of placekeeping that were needed to perform this task. So basically it just shows that sleep deprivation impairs a wide range of cognitive abilities. If you struggle falling asleep at night, Stepan recommends having a consistent sleep schedule, limiting screen time at night, to try and do relaxing activities before bed, not homework or work, and to try and avoid caffeine later in the day. And I think a big part of it is about listening to your body and when you start to feel tired because, you know, we have this circadian clock, this biological clock, which regulates when we feel tired and when we feel more awake. And, you know, that's a little bit different for each individual person. So potentially it's you're trying to go to bed too early for your biological clock. Maybe you're trying to go to bed too late. And so try to tune into your own rhythms and things like that um, can be helpful for going to sleep at night. One of the most important takeaways of this study is to exercise caution and know your limits when you're sleep deprived. Sleep is really important. And sleep deprivation then is really damaging for our cognitive functioning. We've found that it impairs a wide range of cognitive abilities, and you might not necessarily be aware of how much sleep loss is affecting you. It's extra deceiving because just because you perform well on one thing when you're sleep deprived does not mean you're going to perform well on something else when you're sleep deprived. So you can't use one thing to predict how you're going to perform on something else. I I say that's really deceiving because, you know, if we go back to the cake example, say you do follow the cake recipe and make a perfectly fine cake and, and you've been awake all night. And so you think, well, you know, I did that fine. I didn't make any errors. So maybe I can, you know, drive to my friend's house and that'll also be fine. But the truth of the matter is just because you performed well on that doesn't mean you're going to be able to drive your car and not have something bad happen. Stepin plans to continue her research by looking at interventions such as caffeine and naps and whether or not they actually help mitigate effects of sleep deprivation. She said this can be especially important for careers that often involve some level of sleep loss, like surgeons or nurses. And though the listeners of this podcast may not all be surgeons, I think it's important to note the results of this study and be mindful of our limits. Whether you are a college student trying to four-point your next exam, or an astrophysicist on the edge of a breakthrough, lack of sleep can affect everyone's mental capabilities. And performing your best starts with taking care of yourself. For Impact Student Radio, I'm Taylor Holterman. The second story I have for you today is actually a year old. However, I think it's really fitting for this weekend, especially since Monday is going to be 
Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Um, the story itself is a conversation that I had with reporter and former host of The Undercurrent, Cole Tunningly. Um, the conversation's about a speech that Dr. King gave in Detroit only a couple months preceding his march in Washington. Um, so disclaimer about that story is that it was made a year ago, and so one of the first things that I'm going to say is that uh, MLK Day is the 21st of January, uh, which was true last year, but not this year. In the year of 2020, Martin Luther King Day is going to be celebrated on Monday, January 20th. So anyway, not that that's all that important to the story, but you need to hear that disclaimer. So here's that throwback. All right. So tomorrow is January 21st, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. A lot of times what I associate with Martin Luther King Jr. is his great march on Washington. Yeah, that's that's what I think of. I think of I have a dream for sure. Different boycotts, uh, his time in jail. Um, yeah, cool. All good stuff that I am going to get to. <laughs> One of the things that uh, Martin Luther King also did, Cole, was, well, do you know about the walk to freedom in Detroit? Um, I feel like I've seen pictures maybe where they're holding signs that say stuff about jobs. I've definitely seen MLK with the sign behind him that says Detroit, but I don't really know why they were there or what Walk to Freedom really meant. Okay, cool. Well, let's talk about it. Um, so on June 23rd, 1963, Martin Luther King, among other civil rights leaders, led the Walk to Freedom march uh, in Detroit, Michigan. So over 125,000 people attended the march. And to give that some context, that's more people than attended the Super Bowl last year. So is that all those people are in Detroit? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, it was a lot. If you see the pictures, it's just, I mean, it swarms and swarms. And so immediately following that march, that walk up Woodward Avenue, about 14,000 of those people crammed into Cobo Hall uh, to hear Dr. King speak. Uh, so after thanking all the leaders, uh, he opened it up this way. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot begin to say to you this afternoon how thrilled I am, and I cannot begin to tell you the deep joy that comes to my heart as I participate with you in what I consider the largest and greatest demonstration for freedom ever held in the United States. I always forget that Detroit had its era as a place where people would hold maybe the largest gathering of some kind in the country. You know, that Detroit was such a big city. Yeah, yep. And so did I when I was like looking into all this. So up until this point in the civil rights movement, this was the biggest demonstration ever held. So this happened about two months before the monumental and historical March on Washington, where MLK gave his I Have a Dream speech that like came to be immortalized and came to be this, you know, symbol and sort of like point of history that everybody remembers. But, however, Detroit was the first place that he actually gave that speech. So it was sort of a dry run for Washington. And um, there are parts that obviously changed between those two events, but a lot of them are really remarkably similar, which you can hear in this clip. I have a dream this afternoon. My four little children 
that my four little children will not come up in the same young days that I came up within, but they will judge, be judged on the basis of the content of their character, not the color of their skin. I have a dream this afternoon that one day right here in Detroit, Negroes will be able to buy a house or rent a house anywhere that their money will carry them, and they will be able to get a job. Yes, I have a dream this afternoon that one day in this land the words of Amos will become real, and justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I have a dream this evening. Can you tell he's a preacher? Yeah, I no, I think that is a great method of public speaking that I really miss because all these, the new inspirational public speakers that we have, like people say Obama, you know, Beto can really get a crowd whipped up, but they kind of do this weird, almost like our radio voice, but I'm okay. You can actually tell that he's feeling things. He's appealing to God and the whole crowd. Um I think it's great. I would prefer someone to sermonize rather than someone who's like, hello, folks. Good evening. Actually, that's what a lot of people have said is that going to see Martin Luther King really felt like going to church. So that part speaks to me a lot because it sounds, I mean, it really captures the I have a dream that goes on to be uh, immortalized on, on Washington. But he also talks about Detroit in that in that part and that's what really kind of got me thinking and there's one more part that I want to play um, because this is the middle of the speech where MLK basically calls on Detroit to keep fighting for civil rights um, and it stood out a lot to me because it sort of captures the difference between the fight in the north and the fight in the south. As I move toward my conclusion you asking I'm sure what can we do here in Detroit to help in the struggle in the south? Now, in the North, it's different in that it doesn't have the legal sanction that it has in the South, but it has its subtle and hidden form. And it exists in three areas, in the area of employment discrimination, in the area of housing discrimination, and in the area of de facto segregation in the public schools. And we must come to see that de facto segregation in the North is just as injurious of the actual, as the actual segregation in the South. So there he starts talking about the South and how Detroiters and Northerners in general can find solidarity and find their place in the civil rights movement. And that's what really kind of got me thinking, because when I think about the civil rights movement, the first thing that jumps into my mind are those Southern cities like Birmingham and Montgomery and even Selma, you know, the brutality and the clash that was going on down there. It's sad to me now that Detroit isn't seen as a um, as Montgomery or Birmingham or Selma, only because it, it really did have a lot of cool civil rights contributions, aside from the civil rights activists and organizers that played huge roles. Um, it did play a huge financial role, which was something I had never really thought about. For example, um, when King and other protesters were thrown in the Birmingham jail, uh, the president of the United Automobile Workers Labor Union, Walter Ruther, was the one who pulled together over $160,000 in funds to get them released. That's great. I mean, I love to hear about 
um, solidarity between MLK and uh, workers because I feel like it gets lost a lot how much he supported workers and was talking about jobs for everyone and everyone having a house and like it it wasn't just civil rights like he was advocating for full like something even bigger than that I think he was fighting for citizenship rights but yeah this auto uh walter ruther king actually called this guy the most widely known and respected white labor leader in the nation and he was a detroit guy so that was cool but anyway back to the walk on freedom speech specifically i want to talk about one more thing um that's a big part of the speech which is the recording right like it sounds pretty good it does yeah there's you can tell it's in a big room you can hear his voice kind of like soar around and you can tell how many people are there, but it's not like totally just lost and used drowned out. I think it sounded good. Yeah, you kind of sound and you kind of feel like you're there. And um, that might be because Motown recorded it. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know that. Ex-boxer and founder of Motown, Barry Gordy, um, is mainly famous for recording artists like Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, and Diana Ross. Uh, but despite having a significant influence in producing black artists, he wasn't overly interested in politics. Um, he was much more focused uh, in the beginning of being the sound of young America and capitalizing on music uh, that's been described as, uh, quote, a combination of soul and R&B wrapped in crossover rhythms. Uh, in the volatile 60s, the sound was perfect soulful enough for blacks to embrace it and clean enough for whites to enjoy it. So he was really sort of soaring on that success, but he eventually had a change of heart and realized um, probably that his business was, I mean, just inherently linked to the civil rights movement um, and the art that he was producing. And so Gordy Hisson said that, quote, Dr. King told me that my music was really about social integration while he was trying to bring about intellectual and political integration. He wanted me to join him in his movement, and he wanted to be a part of Motown, my label. Yeah, so Motown put out these spoken word LPs. They were the first spoken word um, products that they, they put out for distribution, uh, including the March on Washington and the March to Freedom that we've been talking about. And all of the royalties made from those sales went directly to SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. I want to quick say, too, that I think it's funny that like, if you remember, Gordy was an ex-boxer, and so he said and joked that Martin Luther King's commitment to nonviolence was kind of a foreign idea to him. Um, but that's besides the point. I just <laughs> think that that was a great quote. Um, so yeah, so Motown recorded and distributed the LPs, both for Walk to Freedom and, obviously, more famously, the March on Washington. But that's sort of the link from Detroit to the Civil Rights Movement. And what parts of the world do you see, like, MLK's legacy being continued like you've done all this research and I feel like you you listen to the speech and are there can you think of anything that people are doing that reminds you of this same like spirit oh yeah absolutely so I think one of the parts in his speech that really stood out to me and that reminds me a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement is just the idea of advocacy and seeing wrong and seeing brutality and making a concerted effort to fix that and like that joining system. together yeah. exactly yeah in his speech martin luther king he points to emmett till as a reason to to fix yeah, like everything that's going of wrong the 
an example of the brutality and stuff. Exactly. And so today I see us looking at people like Michael Brown and sort of finding these new wrongs that need to be righted. And I think that Martin Luther King stood up for people and stood up for people who've been wronged. And that's what I see still today. And that that's where I see his legacy, at least from this speech. That's what I, I pulled out. And that's it for our show. Thank you to our station manager, Joe Dandron, general manager, Jeremy Whiting, and program director, Amber Konutsky. And as always, thank you to you, our listeners. Thank you for tuning in for 13 seasons. Or if this is your first season, thank you so much for tuning in today. Um, if you're interested in going back and listening to our archive of stories, feel free to check it out on our website at impact89fm.org, uh, Apple Podcasts, or newly on Spotify. And of course, you can always tune in at 10.30 a.m. every Sunday on WDBM East Lansing. For this week, that's all I've got. You've been listening to The Undercurrent. <laughs>